Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth and now for the opportunity to examine this truth about the cross. So Lord, we pray now that your spirit would tend to our hearts and lives in a way that would be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I do want to remind you um, that this evening we'll be having uh, a gathering at 7 p.m. right here for uh, a presentation. I feel very loud, sound very loud, so I'm talking slowly or softly. Uh, We'll have a presentation for our upcoming bylaws for our new church. And so if you're at all able to be here tonight, we would strongly encourage and invite you to come back this evening at 7 to hear that presentation. It's not a Q&A. It's not a question and answer time. It's merely a presentation. You will take copies away with you. We'll have a question and answer time at a later date. But I think it would be very important and will answer a lot of your questions if you would come tonight and hear the presentation. So please be back for that this evening at 7 p.m. Our youth, Callaway youth, meet here from 5.30 to 6.30 tonight as well. All right. Mark chapter 15. You know, we are, we are a people who are fascinated by brands. Just think about the, the, the various brands you see on the screen behind me. For example, when, when you put up these certain brands, I don't have to tell you what that is, do I? No words necessary. That is, that is, those are all very fast, apparently, brands that, that we see. Apple and Chick-fil-A, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks. Anybody hungry yet? I mean, I don't have to explain to you these various brands. They speak for themselves. In fact, you can, you can, you can see the, the significance and the importance that business and organizations place upon their brand. They will, they will spend thousands, if not millions of dollars developing their brand because it is their brand that sells their product. In fact, many people buy because of a particular symbol. It's amazing how we will do that, and they will go out of their way to protect their brand. You know, when you think about Christianity, over our long history, Christians have also become a branded people. Whether we wanted to be or not, we have been known as a branded people because uh, while we haven't paid millions for consultants, our brand is pretty much known worldwide and as the brand of the cross. We know that the world and much of the world associates the Christian faith with the cross. And it is the cross that stands at the very foundation of our faith and core of who we are. In fact, even with our own new church being started, our own symbol is, is, has this brand of the cross central to who we are as we become redeeming grace. But yet there have been many... Well, I say many. There have been some within our ranks, not the ranks here at Callaway Campus, but within the ranks of Christendom, within uh, the broader brushstroke of Christianity, or at least we could say that loosely. There have been some within, uh, within the, the, the ranks of, of the Christian faith, or what they would confess the Christian faith to be, who have sought to rebrand us. 
In fact, it was in several years ago now, but in November of 1993, there was a, a theological conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota that, that had approximately 2,000 attendees. And the name of this particular conference was titled Reimagining God. One of the speakers at this conference was a lady by the name of Virginia Mullencott. Uh, she's a lesbian and so-called Christian feminist. She's written many different books, one including Omnigender and another called The Divine Feminine. And she's been a strong advocate of LGBT rights under the umbrella of the Christian faith for a long time. But among the many things that she said at this conference, she claimed this. She claimed that the idea of Jesus' atonement was the ultimate in child abuse and model of human child abuse that depicts God as an abusive parent. Others, along with her, including a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York, agreed condemning the idea of Christ's atonement as an abusive patriarchal system and then said this, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses, dripping in blood and weird stuff. And yet, we, you and I, have gathered in this building today to sing songs about this weird stuff to recite a creed that affirms this weird stuff, to hear a message from the Bible about someone hanging on a cross whose dripping blood is the very source and foundation of our faith. Why would we do this? Why would we sing these songs? Why would we preach these sermons? Why would we recite a creed that affirms these truths and to say that the, that the cross, what some would call weird stuff, is foundational to who we are as Christians? Why would we build our lives on the execution of a man who lived over 2,000 years ago? Paul dealt with this. We know in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul knew that this message that we proclaim and this truth that we celebrate centering upon a cross is, is a stumbling block to many and outright foolishness, if not weird stuff, to others. But yet to those who are the called is the very power of God, the wisdom of God. Well, today we're going to be looking at the 15th chapter of Mark as we look and examine at the final moments of Jesus' life, as we observe his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, and see exactly why we could never refer to the cross as weird stuff. Paul, again, to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 3, said, For I deliver to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. 
Paul said this was not some secondary issue. This was of first importance. If you don't get this right, if you don't base your life on this truth, you have missed the entire gospel. This is of first importance. This is central to who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we consider these truths, as we look at Mark chapter 15 and a few other passages, friends, the reality of a crucified Savior is not some weird act of divine child abuse, but the very means through which God took upon himself to rescue us from our sins. And so I want us to look at why. Why we must be a cross-centered, a cross-saturated people who not only affirm the cross, but defend this message of the cross and proclaim this message of the cross. We know that in the Apostles' Creed, a phrase that we'll really be coming alongside of this morning from our text, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered, and here's the phrase, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Why is that so critical to our faith? Well, let's look at that together from Mark chapter 15. Let's look at the cross and what it reminds us of and why we must base our lives upon it. Number one, the cross reminds us of the existence of a a real opposition. There is a a genuine, true opposition that exists in the world uh, concerning God and his Son. You know, Jesus had spent the, if you work through the gospel accounts, and, and and you walk through the ministry, the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus had spent the last three years of his life demonstrating his power over the physical realm, over the natural realm, over the spiritual realm. He had also lived a life of perfect obedience to God, obeyed the law fully, perfectly. Not once did he fall into sin. And in one night, one night, one night, he was betrayed by one of his closest followers, denied by another, really denied by all of them because they all ran like cats, arrested by a mob and brought to Pilate to be tried as a criminal. When you consider the events leading up to Jesus' death, when you consider all that was going on surrounding Jesus' death, what we see here, friends, is one of the, the most, you know, one of the, 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 one of the most appalling examples of rebellion and rejection that you'll ever find. This was a perfect man. And now he was being put on trial for something he never did. You know, the irony in all of this is that the very arrest and execution that Jesus endured was the very reason he came to begin with. Whenever we, whenever we find ourselves downplaying the crucifixion and the cross of Jesus, which I think many do, and even many of us are prone to do from time to time, 
When we downplay that, when we, when we reduce the, the, the atoning work of Jesus down and down, and, and then to, to so far, for some, to, to even see that it's not helpful. When we reduce the, when we downplay the horror of Christ's suffering and crucifixion, we are ultimately downplaying the horror of sin. Even here in the arrest and the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, we see just how far man had gone in his depravity, in his rejection, his rebellion. You see how far gone man is in his sin. I want you to just look at this. I want you to see the opposition revealed in several, several individuals in this text. Now, now, first of all, in the first few verses here, we, we know that it's the chief priests who were behind all of this. These, these were people who were malicious in their opposition. We have a malicious opposition. These were outright, these were, these were men who were outright evil in their behavior and actions. They were determined to take Jesus out. They hated him. He, they saw Jesus as a threat to their religious system. And he was. He was. They hated him. And they led Jesus to trial. They, led, led, they arrested him. They led him to his trial and ultimately to his execution. And to beat all, just think about this, friends. Their malicious attitude towards Jesus was religiously motivated. These were not outright pagans who were in opposition to any aspect of religion whatsoever. These were defenders, quote-unquote, of the faith. It's the truth today. We have people who are in their opposition to Jesus. But I want you to also notice the crowd. Verse 11, we're told the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release, to have Pilate release Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so Pilate says to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to him, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas and delivered Jesus over to be crucified. We have this additional opposition, which would be something I would call manipulated opposition, because the chief priests were the ones stirring the crowd up. But yet the crowd was also participating in this opposition. We can't simply blame the chief priest alone. It was the, the crowds were also involved. The chief priest, again, stirred them up. But, but friends, let that be a reminder of how quickly and easy people can fall prey to the influence of others. The crowd was opposed to Jesus because they were led to think wrongly about him. And so you have them mocking him. You have them crying out for this criminal to be released and for this innocent man to be condemned. You know, it's easy for us to think about how we would be so different from the crowd if we were there. Friends, the reality is, is that we would be no different were it not for the grace of God. We'll be singing a song in just a little while as we celebrate communion, how deep the Father's love, and one of the phrases in that song says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder, ashamed 
I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. You have this manipulated opposition. But then there's what I would entitle indifferent opposition. And that is in Pilate. Pilate is an interesting figure throughout this whole account because you sort of, in your humanness, you, you feel for him a bit. If you're honest or if, you're, if you've never felt for Pilate, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but there's been times I, I sort of feel for Pilate. You know, he's sort of in a pinch, right? Don't worry, I'm going to come back and hold him accountable in a minute. But he's, he's in a bit of an awkward position. In fact, several times he makes attempts to release Jesus. He's convinced this man has done no wrong. Why would you want to crucify him? I find no guilt in this man, he says in the other gospel accounts in Luke and John. He's dumbfounded by the response of the crowd. However, the, the key phrase about Pilate's true heart is found in verse 15. He knows this is an innocent man. He knows what's about to happen is, is, is unfounded. But we're told in verse 15, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. He was more concerned about his well-being and his welfare and his name than he was about the name of an innocent. And he wasn't about to risk anything to lose his power and to lose his influence even if that meant handing over an innocent man to be condemned. Pilate, wishing, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You could say that Pilate was indifferent, that he had no strong feelings one way or the other, but friends, let me remind you that when it comes to Jesus, there's no middle ground. Indifference is opposition. There's no middle ground. You are either with him or you are not. And Pilate is in no different camp. He may not have been malicious in his opposition. He may not have been outspoken in his opposition. But the fact that he was indifferent and he was more concerned about his own name, about his own power, about his own well-being than he was that of Jesus demonstrates that he was not for Jesus. He was against him. There are many people like this today. They prefer Jesus. They, they like Jesus. They, in fact, will come to church and sing songs about Jesus. They, they, they want to be associated even with Jesus. They find no harm in him. But, but they certainly don't see any reason to risk their lives for him. When you, talk, when you start talking about taking up your cross daily and following him, that, no thank you is their answer. Friends, let Pilate, as a side point this morning, let him be a reminder that you can never serve the living Christ while at the, same try, at the same time trying to satisfy a sinful world. It cannot happen. The cross, it reveals a true opposition. And every single one of us can find our place in that the world today is filled with opposition concerning Christ, whether it's an outright hatred for him or an indifference towards him. Opposition exists. In fact, most of the world is standing opposed to Christ. But yet the cross reveals a second truth. It reveals a determined love. 
We're told in John's gospel in chapter 15, verse 13, that greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And while some want to mock the cross or even outright reject it, there has been no greater demonstration of sacrificial love than that of the cross. Again, the, the reason that, that people are so horrified by a cross and, and want to, to abandon the cross is because they, they are not horrified when it comes to sin. The, their, their rejection of the cross ultimately is, is a rejection somehow of, of the nature of man. This, the problem is sin. And as revealed in the hearts of the Pharisees, the crowds, and even Pilate, there is a significant problem. We have all rebelled against our Creator. We have all fallen short. We are all under the curse of sin. And and there is no way, there is no way humanly possible that we can remove ourselves from this curse. We cannot. We stand condemned before a holy God. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, when it comes to to us being reunited to a holy God. You can't do that. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So if you're relying upon your achievements, upon obeying God's laws, upon good works, to try to bring yourself to God, you're under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You say, well, I'm getting an 80. Doesn't work. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous by faith. It was that very phrase that led to Martin Luther's conversion. But the law, verse 12, is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed, be ever, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Let's consider several things about the love of Christ here revealed in the cross. Number one, Jesus suffered. When you read this account and you read through the 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 gospel accounts, whether it's here in Mark's gospel or in the other gospels, and you read about his arrest, you read about the fact that he was scourged, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was mocked, crown of thorns was placed on his head, and he was mocked. All of this happened before he was ultimately nailed to a cross. Friends, Jesus suffered. He was the suffering suffering. This was no easy task. He was even suffering in the garden before his arrest as he prayed to his father, Lord, remove this cup from me if it's possible. He was, under, he was experiencing the agony that came with the suffering. He, he really suffered. He, he didn't merely just go throughout this whole episode sort of zapping in his divine attributes so that he could endure it no he suffered as a man he he endured the hostility go read Isaiah chapter 53 he prophesies about this suffering this was no easy task you know some have a difficult time reconciling the terrible realities that Jesus endured in his sufferings and at the cross as an expression of love 
How can something so terrible at the same time be so loving? Well, the simple answer is the very things Jesus endured is what we deserved because of our rebellion, because of our sin and rejection. And we deserved, we deserved what Christ endured. That selfishness that was in your heart this week, pride that manifests itself, that bitterness, that anger, that resentment, that jealousy, the lust, the greed. All of that that manifested itself in your heart and in your actions and your behavior this week, you deserved death and judgment. Christ, because he loved you, gave himself for you. He suffered in your place. He took upon himself the curse. He was cursed. For you. That's why it's a manifestation of love. Yes, it was terrible. It's because our sin is terrible. We we deserve the the judgment and the punishment and the wrath that comes due to our rejection of God. And yet Christ stood in our place as a substitute, willingly taking upon himself everything that we deserved so that we could be welcomed and reconciled to God. Friends, that is love. You know, many simply downplay the cross today. Even evangelical Christians, they will downplay the cross in their evangelism. They'll talk a lot lot about Jesus, but they won't talk much about the cross. They'll sing songs in worship, but they won't sing about the cross. There's no repentance, there's no cross, there's no sin, simply a therapeutic gospel. If you want to feel good about yourself, if you want eternal life, no mention of sin, no mention of the cross. We can't avoid, we can't avoid the cross. You avoid the cross, you've avoided the gospel. Jesus suffered. Jesus was forsaken. As you continue to read in Matthew or Mark chapter 15, we know that he's crucified. Verse 20, after they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. We know that he's crucified. Even the soldiers divided his garments and cast lots for them. Verse 25 says it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription that they put upon him said, read simply, the king of the Jews. He was crucified beside two robbers, two criminals. One on his right, one on his left. Continued to be mocked, continued to be ridiculed. And we get to verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to you if if you don't know how to read time back in that day. Because the sixth hour was noon. It's 25 minutes from noon, and I don't know about you, but it's in 25 minutes it's going to be as much daylight as it is now. But we're told that darkness was over the entire land. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon until three. And it's in verse 34 that we read where Jesus in Aramaic cries out, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus was, was feeling the, the, the full weight and judgment of God upon his shoulders as he was for that moment forsaken by his own father so that he could endure the full wrath and punishment that you and I deserved. Anytime the Bible talks about darkness, it's talking about, typically talking about a mark of divine judgment. You can read the prophets, they talk much about that. And here, Jesus is taking upon himself the judgment that was going to make us his own. And then number three, Jesus died. He didn't merely fall asleep or pass out, he died. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, and we know from the other gospels, he said, it is finished. And he breathed his last. He died. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, we know that 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 is affirmed. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He died. Some of you who've recited the Apostles' Creed throughout your years know that some versions of the Apostles' Creed will say that he descended into hell. But I don't think that that is taught in the Bible. I think that even the original people who put the Apostles' Creed together did not mean that when they put that he descended into hell. They had a total another meaning altogether. That's why we would affirm that he descended to the dead. This idea that he descended into hell is supposedly based from a reference in 1 Peter 3 where they talk about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. However, that is a reference to Noah's day. He did not descend into hell. Rather, he was encountering the full extent of hell's reality on the cross. Like what Calvin said, his descent into hell happened at the cross when he experienced the horrors of hell reserved for those who have been forsaken by God. He died. We know that even that argument is defeated because he told the one criminal beside him, today you'll be with me in paradise. important that we see the cross as a manifestation of a determined love. Jesus loved you so much that he suffered for you, that he was forsaken momentarily for you, and that he died for you. But then, number three, the reason we need to continue to affirm the cross is Jesus, this cross represents our only hope. Since there's no other way for you to be accepted by God. There's no other way. There have been many responses to, to the suffering of, of Jesus, and, and there's been many people that have had to try to explain it one way or the other, or reject it, or, or this and that, but he's our only hope. And you know, in this passage, there, there's one person that sort of sticks out that, that gets that hope. We're told in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then read verse 38 and 39. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this is, so that in, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
Not even Jesus' disciples had affirmed him as the Son of God up until this point. And here stood this Roman soldier who minutes before had just given approval and participated in the execution of Jesus, who had authority over a hundred soldiers, is standing at the foot of the cross amidst the darkness, the temple in the, uh, the, the, the veil in the temple torn in two, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. Just a few moments before, he had denied this man, and now he was acknowledging this man. Friends, let that be a reminder to you, to me, to the people that we engage in, in our context, that, friends, there, there is power in the cross. And when people are confronted with the realities of the cross, yes, there are going to be many kinds of responses to that, but friends, know that there will, there will be those who see Christ for who He is and who acknowledge the truth of what He's done because He is our only hope. You know, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, He said, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things I could boast about. There's a lot of things that I could commit my life to. There's a lot of things that I could, could stand for and to acknowledge and proclaim. But far be it from me to boast in anything, in anything whatsoever, except in this cross, in the crucifixion of the Son of the living God. Because it is through this crucifixion and this crucifixion alone that my sins are washed away and that this sinner, this sinner who deserved the judgment and wrath of God can be accepted and welcomed and adopted into the family of God. Not because you are good or wise or smart or faithful, but because Jesus is good and wise and faithful. And he went and died in your place. You know, there are many corporations today that would fight to the bitter, bitter end to defend their brand. You just go try and steal Apple's identity and see what happens. But you know, these brands, they will come and they will go. But friends, we have a brand, if you will, that stands forever. And our brand merely doesn't represent some organization. It represents that which Christ promised he would build and that which will last forever. And it represents the way that you and I can have life and life everlasting. So Christians, do not grow weary and do not grow discouraged in your defense and proclamation of the cross because no matter what the world may say, no matter how weird they may think it to be, no matter how offensive, stumbling block, no matter how foolish they think it is, friends, it is the very foundation of your hope, my hope, and it is their only hope. So be faithful, because there will be Roman centurions out there somewhere who will see Jesus for who he is and acknowledge him as Lord.
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth. God, you are an amazing God and you are you are loving. And even when we talk about the cross and sing about the cross and hear about the cross this morning, hear about the one who suffered, hear about the horrors of the cross, Lord, it's, it is horrible, but yet it's glorious. It's horrible because it reminds us of how horrible sin is and how sin must be held accountable. Lord, you're not a God who, who will just merely overlook sin. You're not a God who will just merely look the other way, but Lord, sin must be held Held accountable. God, you are a God who is just. And Lord, the horrible realities of our rebellion against you is manifest in the horrible reality of the cross. But yet, Lord, the cross, as horrible as it is, is glorious. Because it is also a manifestation of your love and of your grace and of your mercy. In that while justice is being accomplished... While judgment is being poured out upon sin, love is being extended to sinners. Forgiveness is being accomplished. Reconciliation is being made so that anyone who would look away from themselves and look away from their sin and trust in Jesus would be accepted and welcomed into your family. Lord, this is indeed true love and we thank you for that. God, you are faithful and you are good. And we acknowledge your faithfulness even now in our midst. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for what you've done to redeem ungodly people who deserve nothing but judgment. God, we thank you for life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.